Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Three Dialogues Between Hylas and Philonous in Opposition to Skeptics and Atheists by George Barclay. The Second Dialogue. Hyl. I beg your pardon, Philonous, for not meeting you sooner. All this morning my head was so filled with our late conversation that I had not leisure to think of the time of the day, or indeed of anything else. Philonous, I am glad you were so intent upon it, in hopes if there were any mistakes in your concessions or fallacies in my reasonings from them, you will now discover them to me. Hyle, I assure you I have done nothing ever since I saw you, but search after mistakes and fallacies, and, with that view, have minutely examined the whole series of yesterday's discourse, but all in vain, for the notions it led me into, upon review, appear still more clear and evident, and, the more I consider them, the more irresistibly do they force my assent. Phil, it is not this, think you, a sign that they are genuine? that they proceed from nature, and are conformable to right reason? Truth and beauty are in this alike, that the strictest survey sets them both off to advantage, while the false lustre of error and disguise cannot endure being reviewed, or too nearly inspected. Hyle, I own there is a great deal in what you say, nor can any one be more entirely satisfied of the truth of those odd consequences, so long as I have in view the reasonings that lead to them. But, when these are out of my thoughts, there seems, on the other hand, something so satisfactory, so natural and intelligible, in the modern way of explaining things, that, I profess, I know not how to reject it. Phil, I know not what way you mean. Hyl, I mean the way of accounting for our sensations or ideas. Phil, how is that? Hyle, it is supposed the soul makes her residence in some part of the brain, from which the nerves take their rise, and are thence extended to all parts of the body, and that outward objects, by the different impressions they make on the organs of sense, communicate certain vibrative motions to the nerves, and these, being filled with spirits, propagate them to the brain or seat of the soul, which, according to the various impressions or traces thereby made in the brain, is variously affected with ideas." Phil, and call you this an explication of the manner whereby we are affected with ideas? Hyle, why not, Philonous? Have you anything to object against it? Phil, I would first know whether I rightly understand your hypothesis. You make certain traces in the brain to be the causes or occasions of our ideas. Pray tell me whether by the brain you mean any sensible thing. Hyle, what else think you I could mean? Phil, sensible things are all immediately perceivable, and those things which are immediately perceivable are ideas, and these exist only in the mind. Thus much you have, if I mistake not, long since agreed to. Hyle, I do not deny it. Phil, the brain therefore you speak of, being a sensible thing, exists only in the mind. Now, I would fain know whether you think it reasonable to suppose that one idea or thing existing in the mind occasions all other ideas. And, if you think so, pray how do you account for the origin of that primary idea, or brain itself? Hyle, I do not explain the origin of our ideas by that brain which is perceivable to sense, this being itself only a combination of sensible ideas, 
but by another which I imagine. Phil, but are not things imagined as truly in the mind as things perceived? Hyle, I must confess they are. Phil, it comes, therefore, to the same thing, and you have been all this while accounting for ideas by certain motions or impressions of the brain, that is, by some alterations in an idea, whether sensible or imaginable, it matters not. Hyle, I begin to suspect my hypothesis. Phil, besides, spirits, all that we know or conceive are our own ideas. When, therefore, you say all ideas are occasioned by impressions in the brain, do you conceive this brain or no? If you do, then you talk of ideas imprinted in an idea causing that same idea, which is absurd. If you do not conceive it, you talk unintelligibly, instead of forming a reasonable hypothesis. Hyle, I now clearly see it was a mere dream. There is nothing in it. Phil, you need not be much concerned at it, for after all, this way of explaining things, as you called it, could never have satisfied any reasonable man. What connection is there between a motion in the nerves and the sensations of sound or color in the mind? Or how is it possible these should be the effect of that? Hyle, but I could never think it had so little in it as now it seems to have. Phil, well then, are you at length satisfied that no sensible things have a real existence, and that you are in truth an errant skeptic? Hyle, it is too plain to be denied. Phil, look, are not the fields covered with a delightful verdure? Is there not something in the woods and groves, in the rivers and clear springs, that soothes, that delights, that transports the soul? At the prospect of the wide and deep ocean, or some huge mountain whose top is lost in the clouds, or of an old gloomy forest, are not our minds filled with a pleasing horror? Even in rocks and deserts is there not an agreeable wildness? How sincere a pleasure is it to behold the natural beauties of the earth, to preserve and renew our relish for them? Is not the veil of night alternately drawn over her face, and doth she not change her dress with the seasons? How aptly are the elements disposed! What variety and use in the meanest productions of nature! What delicacy, what beauty, what contrivance, in animal and vegetable bodies! How exquisitely are all things suited, as well to their particular ends, as to constitute opposite parts of the whole! And, while they mutually aid and support, do they not also set off and illustrate each other? Raise now your thoughts from this ball of earth to all those glorious luminaries that adorn the high arch of heaven. The motion and situation of the planets, are they not admirable for use and order? Were those, bracket, miscalled erratic, close bracket, globes, once known to stray, in their repeated journeys through the pathless void? Do they not measure areas round the sun ever proportioned to the times? So fixed, so immutable are the laws by which the unseen author of nature actuates the universe. How vivid and radiant is the luster of the fixed stars! How magnificent and rich that negligent profusion with which they appear to be scattered throughout the whole azure vault! Yet, if you take the telescope, it brings into your sight a new host of stars that escape the naked eye. Here they seem contiguous and minute, but, to a nearer view, immense orbs of light at various distances, far sunk in the abyss of space. Now you must call imagination to your aid. The feeble narrow sense cannot descry innumerable worlds revolving around the central fires, and in those worlds the energy of an all-perfect mind displayed in endless forms. 
but neither sense nor imagination are big enough to comprehend the boundless extent with all its glittering furniture though the labouring mind exert and strain each power to its utmost reach there still stands out ungrasped a surplusage immeasurable yet all the vast bodies that compose this mighty frame how distant and remote soever are by some secret mechanism some divine art and force linked in a mutual dependence and intercourse with each other even with this earth which was almost slipped from my thoughts and lost in the crowd of worlds is not the whole system immense beautiful glorious beyond expression and beyond thought what treatment then do those philosophers deserve who would deprive these noble and delightful scenes of all reality how should those principles be entertained that lead us to think all the visible beauty of the creation a false imaginary glare to be plain can you expect this scepticism of yours will not be thought extravagantly absurd by all men of sense Heil, other men may think as they please but for your part you have nothing to reproach me with my comfort is you are as much a sceptic as i am phil there hylas i must beg leave to differ from you hyle what have you all along agreed to the premises and do you now deny the conclusion and leave me to maintain those paradoxes by myself which you led me into this surely is not fair phil i deny that i agreed with you in those notions that led to scepticism you indeed said the reality of sensible things consisted in an absolute existence out of the minds of spirits or distinct from their being perceived and pursuant to this notion of reality you are obliged to deny sensible things any real existence that is according to your own definition you profess yourself a sceptic but i neither said nor thought the reality of sensible things was to be defined after that manner to me it is evident for the reasons you allow of that sensible things cannot exist otherwise than in a mind or spirit whence i conclude not that they have no real existence but that seeing they depend not on my thought and have all existence distinct from being perceived by me there must be some other mind wherein they exist as sure therefore as the sensible world really exists so sure is there an infinite omnipresent spirit who contains and supports it Heil. what this is no more than i and all christians hold nay and all others who believe there is a god and that he knows and comprehends all things phil ay but here lies the difference men commonly believe that all things are known or perceived by god because they believe the being of a god whereas i on the other side immediately and necessarily conclude the being of a god because all sensible things must be perceived by him Heil but so long as we all believe the same thing what matter is it how we come by that belief phil but neither do we agree in the same opinion for philosophers though they acknowledge all corporeal beings to be perceived by god yet they attribute to them an absolute subsistence distinct from their being perceived by any mind whatever which i do not besides is there no difference between saying there is a god therefore he perceives all things and saying sensible things do really exist and if they really exist they are necessarily perceived by an infinite mind therefore there is an infinite mind or god this furnishes you with a direct and immediate demonstration from a most evident principle of the being of a god divines and philosophers had proved beyond all controversy from the beauty and usefulness of the several parts of the creation that it was the workmanship of god 
but that, setting aside all help of astronomy and natural philosophy, all contemplation of the contrivance, order, and adjustment of things, an infinite mind should be necessarily inferred from the bare existence of the sensible world, is an advantage to them only who have made this easy reflection, that the sensible world is that which we perceive by our several senses, and that nothing is perceived by the senses beside ideas, and that no idea or archetype of an idea can exist otherwise than in a mind. You may now, without any laborious search into the sciences, without any subtlety of reason, or tedious length of discourse, oppose and baffle the most strenuous advocate for atheism, those miserable refuges, whether in an internal succession of unthinking causes and effects, or in a fortuitous concourse of atoms, those wild imaginations of Vanini, Hobbes, and Spinoza, in a word, the whole system of atheism, is it not entirely overthrown by the single reflection on the repugnancy included in supposing the whole, or any part, even the most rude and shapeless of the visible world, to exist without a mind? Let any one of those abettors of impiety but look into his own thoughts, and there try if he can conceive how so much as a rock, a desert, a chaos, or confused jumble of atoms, how anything at all, either sensible or imaginable, can exist independent of a mind, and he need go no farther to be convinced of his folly. Can anything be fairer than to put a dispute on such an issue, and leave it to a man himself to see if he can conceive, even in thought, what he holds to be true in fact, and, from a notional, to allow it a real existence? Heil, it cannot be denied there is something highly serviceable to religion in what you advance, but do you not think it looks very like a notion entertained by some eminent moderns of seeing all things in God? Phil, I would gladly know that opinion. Pray explain it to me. Heil, they conceive that the soul, being immaterial, is incapable of being united with material things, so as to perceive them in themselves, but that she perceives them by her union with the substance of God, which, being spiritual, is therefore purely intelligible, or capable of being the immediate object of a spirit's thought. Besides, the divine essence contains in it perfections correspondent to each created being, and which are, for that reason, proper to exhibit or represent them to the mind. Phil, I do not understand how our ideas, which are things altogether passive and inert, can be the essence, or any part, bracket, or like any part, close bracket, of the essence or substance of God, who is an impassive, indivisible, pure, active being. Many more difficulties and objections there are which occur at first view against this hypothesis, but I shall only add that it is liable to all the absurdities of the common hypothesis in making a created world exist otherwise than in the mind of a spirit. Besides all which it hath this peculiar to itself, that it makes that material world serve to no purpose, and, if it pass for a good argument against other hypotheses in the sciences, that they suppose nature, or the divine wisdom, to make something in vain, or do that by tedious roundabout methods which might have been performed in a much more easy and compendious way, what shall we think of that hypothesis which supposes the whole world made in vain? Heil, but what say you? Are not you too of opinion that we see all things in God? If I mistake not, what you advance comes near it? Phil, few men think, yet all have opinions. Hence, men's opinions are superficial and confused. 
It is nothing strange that tenets which in themselves are ever so different should nevertheless be confounded with each other, by those who do not consider them attentively. I shall not therefore be surprised if some men imagine that I run into the enthusiasm of Malbranche, though in truth I am very remote from it. He builds on the most abstract general ideas, which I entirely disclaim. He asserts an absolute external world, which I deny. He maintains that we are deceived by our senses, and know not the real natures, or the true forms and figures of extended beings, of all which I hold the direct contrary, so that, upon the whole, there is no principles more fundamentally opposite than his and mine. It must be owned that I entirely agree with what the Holy Scripture saith, quote, that in God we live and move and have our being, end quote, but that we see things in his essence, after the manner above set forth, I am far from believing. Take here in brief my meaning. It is evident that the things I perceive are my own ideas, and that no idea can exist unless it be in a mind. Nor is it less plain that these ideas or things by me perceived, either themselves or their archetypes, exist independently of my mind, since I know myself not to be their author, it being out of my power to determine at pleasure what particular ideas I shall be affected with upon opening my eyes or ears. They must, therefore, exist in some other mind, whose will it is they should be exhibited to me. The things, I say, immediately perceived are ideas or sensations. Call them which you will. But how can any idea or sensation exist in, or be produced by, anything but a mind or spirit? This indeed is inconceivable. And to assert that which is inconceivable is to talk nonsense, is it not? Heil, without doubt. Phil, but, on the other hand, it is very conceivable that they should exist in and be produced by a spirit, since this is no more than I daily experience in myself. Inasmuch as I perceive numberless ideas, and, by an act of my will, can form a great variety of them, and raise them up in my imagination, though it must be confessed these creatures of the fancy are not altogether so distinct, so strong, vivid and permanent as those perceived by my senses which latter are called red things from all which i conclude there is a mind which affects me every moment with all the sensible impressions i perceive and from the variety order and manner of these i conclude the author of them to be wise powerful and good beyond comprehension mark it well i do not say i see things by perceiving that which represents them in the intelligible substance of god this I do not understand, but I say, the things by me perceived are known by the understanding, and produced by the will of an infinite spirit. It is not all this most plain and evident? Is there any more in it, than what a little observation in our own minds, and that which passeth in them, not only enables us to conceive, but also obliges us to acknowledge? Heil, I think I understand you very clearly and own the proof you give of a deity seems no less evident than it is surprising. But, allowing that God is the supreme and universal cause of all things, yet may there not be still a third nature, besides spirits and ideas? May we not admit a subordinate and limited cause of our ideas? In a word, may there not for all that be matter? Phil, how often must I inculcate the same thing? You allow the things immediately perceived by sense to exist nowhere without the mind, but there is nothing perceived by sense which is not perceived immediately. Therefore, there is nothing sensible that exists without the mind. 
The matter, therefore, which you still insist on, is something intelligible, I suppose, something that may be discovered by reason, and not by sense. Hyle. You are in the right. Phil. Pray, let me know what reasoning your belief of matter is grounded on, and what this matter is, in your present sense of it. Hyle. I find myself affected with various ideas, whereof I know I am not the cause. Neither are they the cause of themselves, or of one another, or capable of subsisting by themselves, as being altogether inactive, fleeting, dependent beings. They have, therefore, some cause distinct from me and them, of which I pretend to know no more than that it is the cause of my ideas. This thing, whatever it be, I call matter. Phil. Tell me, Hylas, hath every one a liberty to change the current proper signification attached to a common name in any language? For example, suppose a traveller should tell you that in a certain country men pass unhurt through the fire, and, upon explaining himself, you found he meant by the word fire that which others call water. Or, if he should assert that there are trees that walk upon two legs, meaning men by the term trees, would you think this reasonable? Heil. No, I should think it very absurd. Common custom is the standard of propriety in language, and for any man to affect speaking improperly is to pervert the use of speech, and can never serve to a better purpose than to protract and multiply disputes, where there is no difference in opinion. Phil. And doth not matter, in the common current acceptation of the word, signify an extended, solid, movable, unthinking, inactive substance? Heil. It doth. Phil. And hath it not been made evident that no such substance can possibly exist? And, though it should be allowed to exist, yet how can that which is inactive be a cause, or that which is unthinking be a cause of thought? You may, indeed, if you please, annex to the word matter a contrary meaning to what is vulgarly received, and tell me you understand by it an unextended, thinking, active being, which is the cause of our ideas. But what else is this than to play with words, and run into the very fault you just now condemned with so much reason? I do by no means find fault with your reasoning, in that you collect a cause from the phenomena, but I deny that the cause deducible by reason can properly be termed matter. Heil. There is indeed something in what you say, but I am afraid you do not thoroughly comprehend my meaning. I would by no means be thought to deny that God, or an infinite spirit, is the supreme cause of all things. All I contend for is, that, subordinate to the supreme agent, there is a cause of a limited and inferior nature which concurs in the production of our ideas, not by any act of will or spiritual efficiency, but by that kind of action which belongs to matter, viz. motion. Phil. I find you are at every turn relapsing into your old exploded conceit, of a movable and consequently an extended substance, existing without the mind. What? Have you already forgotten you were convinced, or are you willing I should repeat what has been said on that head? In truth, this is not fair dealing in you, still to suppose the being of that which you have so often acknowledged to have no being, but, not to insist further on what has been so largely handled, I ask whether all your ideas are not perfectly passive and inert, including nothing of action in them. Heil. They are. Phil. And are sensible qualities anything else but ideas? Heil. How often have I acknowledged that they are not? Phil. 
But is not motion a sensible quality? Hyl. It is. Phil. Consequently, it is no action? Hyle, I agree with you, and indeed it is very plain that when I stir my finger it remains passive, but my will which produced the motion is active. Phil, now I desire to know, in the first place, whether motion being allowed to be no action, you can conceive any action besides volition, and, in the second place, whether to say something and conceive nothing be not to talk nonsense, and lastly, whether, having considered the premises, you do not perceive that to suppose any efficient or active cause of our ideas, other than spirit, is highly absurd and unreasonable. Heil, I give up the point entirely, but, though matter may not be a cause, yet what hinders its being an instrument, subservient to the supreme agent in the production of our ideas? Phil, an instrument, say you, pray what may be the figure, springs, wheels, and motions of that instrument. Heil, those I pretend to determine nothing of, both the substance and its qualities, being entirely unknown to me. Phil, what? You are then of opinion it is made up of unknown parts, that it hath unknown motions, and an unknown shape? Heil, I do not believe that it hath any figure or motion at all, being already convinced that no sensible qualities can exist in an unperceiving substance. Phil, but what notion is it possible to frame of an instrument void of all sensible qualities, even extension itself? Heil, I do not pretend to have any notion of it. Phil, and what reason have you to think this unknown, this inconceivable somewhat doth exist? Is it that you imagine God cannot act as well without it, or that you find by experience the use of some such thing when you form ideas in your own mind? Heil, you are always teasing me for reasons of my belief. Pray, what reasons have you not to believe it? Phil, it is to me a sufficient reason not to believe the existence of anything, if I see no reason for believing it. But, not to insist on reasons for believing, you will not so much as let me know what it is you would have me believe, since you say you have no manner of notion of it. After all, let me entreat you to consider whether it be like a philosopher, or even like a man of common sense, to pretend to believe you know not what and you know not why. 